This is Voices of COVID-19. I'm Brian Lucas. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we will continue our conversation with Nicole Lewis, a reporter with The Marshall Project, a nonprofit news organization focused on reporting about criminal justice. During the pandemic, Nicole followed the stories of four incarcerated individuals and institutions across the country, putting them together in a fascinating and heartbreaking piece called How We Survived COVID-19 in Prison. You can find this story and her other work at themarshallproject.org. One of the tragic realities of the pandemic is that it has exposed and spotlighted issues in our society that already existed, issues like poverty, racism, and a lack of access to proper health care that combined to make the pandemic even more devastating and more difficult to contain. That has certainly been the case in the criminal justice system, where facilities, policies, and misinformation combine to make a bad situation even worse. As of early June 2021, nearly 400,000 incarcerated people had tested positive and more than 2,700 had died from the virus. One interesting byproduct and potential silver lining of the pandemic response was a push toward decarceration, an effort to keep people out of jails and prisons when possible to reduce overcrowding and hopefully slow the spread of the virus. In part two of our discussion with Nicole Lewis, I asked if there's any hope that these experiments with reducing prison populations might lead to long-term policy changes away from mass incarceration. So I always hate to be the bearer of bad news on things like this, but the Marshall Project just published a look at just this issue within jails. And so jails were really the largest driver of decarceration last year. So it meant that, you know, judges and sheriffs realized that they didn't need people sitting in their jails. They could send them home to await trial. And these are people, right, who are have not yet been convicted. So they could send them home. They could show up to court on Zoom and, you know, the system would kind of proceed as it does with a dramatically reduced jail population. Now, unfortunately, the jail numbers have already started to creep back up. And so we're not seeing these changes, you know, lasting or enduring. And so we thought that this could be that moment. We were actually, the Marshall Project was preparing for different lines of coverage to say, you know, could this be the day? Is this sort of a big experiment um, in which we realize, right, we don't need this many people sitting in prison or in jail, that when it comes to prisons, we could send people home who've been there for a long time and probably don't need to be there anymore. But when it comes to prisons, we actually didn't see such a large-scale decarceration. And so we started tracking those numbers, and it's just a few thousand people here and there, right? And that's a drop in the bucket when you think about the fact that there are about 1.2 million people who are incarcerated, who are in prison, you know, on any given day in the United States. Um, And in some cases, in the worst case of this, we've been looking into rumblings in Pennsylvania, in which they sent people home during COVID and are potentially going to make them have come back to prison. So if you can imagine that it's like kind of the worst case scenario for folks, right? Uh, You get a taste of freedom. And if it goes well, who cares? You're going to be sent right back, right? And so... I am really not sure, and we're really not sure then, what would it take for officials to really test that logic? I think it's politically very scary, I know, for elected officials to make the decision to send people home. There's always this looming fear that someone's going to be sent home, commit a new atrocious crime, and you know they are going to lose public support for that decision. 
And so they're really kind of locked into this battle to, to use some of the levers that they have to decarcerate. I think we see it all the time, and maybe more clearly on a, on a federal level where there have been for years push to get increased clemency. And I should say federal system doesn't have parole. So to restore parole, to have clemency in which the president is able to kind of send people home, to use other mechanisms like compassionate release which is, has been historically designed for people who are sick or aging so that they don't have to die in prison, right? That's another mechanism that's so underutilized. I wish I had a better answer <laughs> here, um, but right now it doesn't look like we have quite the political will or interest uh, to really get those numbers down. Now, as we are in sort of vaccination mode, that's a whole nother issue in the prison population from the reporting that you've done. How is that effort going? And what are some of the barriers to getting both the, the staff and the and the incarcerated individuals vaccinated? So the sort of high level answer to that is it's really mixed from state to state, right? And so every state was able to kind of make a decision on their own about where they wanted to prioritize incarcerated people in the vaccine rollout. So some states started really early. They took the advice of the medical professionals and said, prisons are hotspots, jails are hotspots. We got to go in early and get folks vaccinated so we can just really overall reduce the caseload in our states. Some states didn't follow that guidance. And so they're, you know, mostly sort of clustered in the, in the South, just now kind of ramping up their vaccination efforts for people in prison. So it's very, very mixed. Um, I'd say some of the biggest barriers, you know, one of the biggest one in general when talking about prisons is just stigma. We saw some states like Wisconsin, for example, prioritized incarcerated people in you know the first round. And then lawmakers pushed back and said, hey, actually, no, we, we've got to deprioritize these people, right? We can't give criminals a vaccine before we give your grandma a vaccine, right? And it just shows you the way that incarcerated people kind of figure in the public, you know, imagination and in, in, in people's minds. But then they're just like logistical ones where you you know there's a whole apparatus for trying to figure out okay how do we get vaccines from the health department into the prisons that happen to be you know mostly very rural how do we get people's consent how do we inform people about the vaccine you know what questions do they have how do we get those questions answered i'd say among many of the incarcerated people that i surveyed or spoke to right there was this uneasiness right a distrust of the overall system because they've had such negative experience with the healthcare professionals. And so they're saying, oh, wait a minute, we're not so sure that we want these people administering a vaccine to us. You know, we don't trust them to necessarily handle it the right way, to refrigerate it the way it needs to be refrigerated. We're not really sure. And another component of that distrust is that uh, historically incarcerated people had been used as test subjects. And so there's just this really pervasive fear or sentiment that this is just another uh, way or another opportunity to experiment on incarcerated people. So there's, you know, just general hesitancy that is there for, for good reason. In general, I think there's internalized trauma among the African-American population around the Tuskegee experiments a long time ago. But there are other things in the prison population that are similar just horrific moments that also add to that distrust. And so there must be just a hesitancy. I mean, if you think about vaccine hesitancy outside of the prison walls, there's got to be a significant barrier inside the prison walls. Do you think incarcerated people 
are aware of that? Have they internalized that trauma? Or how is that playing into it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so I should say, you know, I think one of the things that I found most interesting about some of the reporting actually outside of prison on distrust or vaccine distrust in Black communities was that initially people were like, oh, yes, of course, Tuskegee experimented sort of in the past and this this long and enduring issue and situation. And that's why we're seeing this hesitancy we're seeing today. But then many people came back and said, well, actually, the daily racism that Black people experience right, in the medical system is actually the biggest barrier. right? And so the same is true for incarcerated people. You both have this really atrocious and scary legacy of experimentation and mistreatment. And some of that is in the past and some of it is more present. So, for example, when I think when it comes to women, I think often about all of the reporting I've seen about, you know, either forced sterilizations or sterilizations that didn't happen with proper consent, right? Those are happening in real time. But then there's just this past history of experiments and just using incarcerated people to advance science for people on the outside. But more importantly, people are saying that, you know, they deal with the nurses, the doctors, the medical staff on a daily basis. And they don't Based on those interactions, they don't feel confident. You know, they don't feel good. They don't feel like they're going to be treated properly, taken seriously. They don't feel like their questions are going to be answered adequately. And some people have even said, you know, I'm worried that if I have a bad or adverse reaction from the vaccine, that I'd be left to like languish and in my cell um, with no support. And so I think it's those present time, you know, sort of more daily interactions that that really drive that hesitancy up. It sounds like there's also a, a lot of vaccine resistance uh, among like the prison guard population. Have, have you seen a lot of that? Yes. Yeah, so this was, you know, when I first started reporting, I was mostly interested in understanding, you know, how these issues kind of cut with the incarcerated population. And many of the people that I heard back from said, well, we're getting bad information from the guards. The guards are saying they're not going to take it and the vaccine is can kill you. And so we don't know what to think, right? And I, I said to my editor, I said, well, this is what I'm hearing. I think we should really start looking into this. You know, we should see what's actually happening here. And once we did, we saw that there were just high rates of refusal amongst staff members. In one sort of clearest example, we got access to a Facebook group for correctional officers in Florida. And there was a public poll or, you know, a poll made to all of the members. And uh, I think, you know, around, you know, 450 people were polled and about 425 of them said, hell no, we're not taking this vaccine if we get offered this vaccine and we're not even interested. And so not just no, right, but hell no, we're not doing it. Um, And so every system we looked at showed much higher rates of refusal than you would expect. Again, you know, prisons were hotspots. Correctional officers are not spared, right, from contracting the virus. They are also at risk. So it was really just, you know, kind of confusing, a little perplexing. Do we know why that is? Why that population would have so much vaccine hesitancy? We tried to come up with some, you know, to search for some reasons. And and there were a few that really bubbled to the top. I'd say, one, correctional officers tend to be overwhelmingly white, male and lean conservative. And so national polls have showed us that this population, you know, has the highest rates of vaccine hesitancy. Um, And so, you know, that sort of tracks. Um, Another one is just how misinformation spread, you know, amongst officers as well. So they're not immune to what they're reading on Facebook. 
to, you know, latching on to conspiracy theories uh, that the vaccine has microchips in it, you know, that people get can die or get sick. You know, it's important to point out that you don't need a college degree in order to be a correctional officer. And so, again, polls have shown us that people with less educational attainment have also tended to be more uh, hesitant and more susceptible to some of these, you know, wonky theories. So those were a few reasons. I'd say another sort of big reason and something for us to continue to look into is the way that unions also factor here. Correctional officers, many of them have a union that make big decisions about their contracts and their pay and overtime and all this stuff. And so we started to try to get a sense of well, what information are the unions actually giving to those officers? Are they encouraging them? Are they providing, you know, incentives on and on and on? And so we don't yet quite have a clear picture. We got some indication that there were just big questions about, you know, vaccinations and staffing and you know, if you're unvaccinated, can you be transferred to another facility or asked to work longer shifts, right? So there are just some ways that vaccines might be used as a bargaining chip to negotiate for, for better conditions. And so we're sort of poking around trying to really understand what that looks like. Is there a reason we can't require personnel, staff to be vaccinated? So this was a, a huge question for us too, like a very sort of gray area at this point. So this is the way that I understand it. The vaccines that have been approved for use in the United States are approved for use under an emergency, you know, authorization. And so they actually haven't been formally accepted or formally like approved by the FDA. And so there's a big question legally about can you actually require a vaccine that is yet to be officially or formally approved? Um, can you require someone to take that? And so this is a question that affects, you know, everybody across sectors. And so in some cases, we've seen that, you know, hospitals, nursing homes, places like that are saying, yes, actually, we can, we can mandate this. It's for the sort of general health of, our, of everybody. It's for the public good. We're willing to sort of take, go out on a limb and say, this is mandated. But that means that they're often exposed or open to potential lawsuits, right? When people say this is not fair and they can sue. And so there's just been... It's been sort of tricky to kind of pin down a clear answer here, but that's sort of state, the legal state as far as, as I understand it. And so the prison system has been hesitant, not willing to mandate. Um, again, the union would have a large role to play here in terms of, you know, a negotiation about like what that looks like and what it means. In some cases now, in order to boost these the numbers amongst correctional officers, the systems have started giving out, you know, like financial incentives. So Colorado, for example, is saying you'll get a five hundred dollar bonus if you get vaccinated, right? Like just go do it. That's five hundred bucks in your you know, in your pocket. So they're starting to find kind of new ways to to get those numbers up. My next question is really related to what I think might be the, a, a second wave of issues caused by the pandemic, both in the general society, but maybe particularly in the prison population, and that's mental health. What are your thoughts on that? What are you hearing and and how equipped are the prison systems to handle this next part of the pandemic? Such an important question here. And so it makes me think of um, one of the people that I followed you know, throughout the pandemic. His name is James Ellis, and he was witness, you know, part of this extraordinary outbreak in Marion Prison in Ohio, uh, where basically the majority of people incarcerated there uh, contracted COVID and the National Guard came in, right? And so, you know, he was saying that, you know, that wave seems to be behind us, but a new illness is setting in uh, where the stress of that experience has caused people to be acting in more irrational ways and 
you know, of using drugs in new ways and just uh, trying to, to cope to alleviate, I think, some of uh, the hardship that they faced. You know, prisons are in, in the best of circumstances, woefully ill-equipped to deal with the mental health challenges that they face. And so I should sort of back up and say, right, prisons and jails have largely become like our de facto mental health centers, uh, mental health treatment centers, right? So in many states, uh, the funding and the support for people who are in distress has really dwindled. And so they've been really shuttled into the prison system. And so on any given day, you've got a lot of people dealing with you know, serious mental health issues and are not able to get the care that they need. And so I think, yeah, it is a big question about what kind of counseling, if any, would be offered to people who survived this pandemic behind bars? Is there any even thought about the, the need to do that? What does PTSD look like or mean for people here? You know, how does that change their behavior? It's really unclear to me at this point. But I do know, you know, just generally about the system, it just simply, one sort of lacks the compassion, I think, needed to really take mental health issues seriously. And two, it lacks the, you know, skill or expertise to address mental health on a large scale. I think that we're probably still coming to terms, I think, again, as a general public, we're coming to terms with the long-term effect of what a year of hanging this over us will entail. But I think some of your reporting talked about people who are really taking on some destructive behaviors. You talked about some people like boiling off hand sanitizer and consuming it and behavior that we need to get a handle on and we need to offer help. And like you said, even in the best of times, this is not a system that is designed to help people. Are you still in touch with with the people that you followed? And, and what are their thoughts? How are they coping at this point? Oh, yeah. No, I'm still in touch with every person. And, you know, sort of check in every couple of weeks and say, how's it going? And, you know, what's so interesting to me is often many of the folks I'm in touch with are they're, they ask about how I'm doing and how the pandemic is unfolding for me and outside and right and, and just this huge generosity um, there that I'm like, no, but how are you? Right. And sometimes I just think caring about other people being invested in their lives can sometimes be the best coping mechanism. It distracts you a little bit from your own circumstances and gives you sort of an outlet. Right. And so I think sometimes when I get those emails, I say, you know, it's fine. It's fine. I'm fine. I'm, I'm happy to sort of tell you a little bit about how things are unfolding, but I want them to know still that I'm thinking about them and that people out here are kind of thinking about them. I'd say the way that they cope is the same way that they cope, you know, with any, any of the hard days in prison. Uh, it's through remembering the, the people that matter most to them, you know, their friends on the inside, um, really trying to stay connected to families, trying to tell their stories, right? So I said in the beginning, Oftentimes, you know, it was hard reporting out this piece over the course of a year, but for many people sharing their story was, gave meaning, right? It gave them a sense of purpose. And so now we've sort of, you know, I think of these relationships as really collaborative. So I've sort of set my sights on new stories and new issues that I'm always asking mm. them, you know, tell me what's going on, right? So they, they have a sense of um, a mission. They have an outlet, uh, you know, an opportunity to kind of explain to the world what, what's happening. Um, and it's my job to sort of translate that for the public. Uh, so, yeah. you know, and, and I think, too, at the same time, I think many folks were very honest and open and vulnerable with me. But I think in general, it can be very hard to just talk about what's actually very hard. And so sometimes I think, you know, I'm not really getting the whole story. I'm not really getting those moments in which someone might be crying themselves to sleep or, you know, feel a little hopeless. Um, 
I think in time that sort of comes out, but, uh, you know, sometimes people really keep that close to their chest. So I think that's a good transition to my final question, which is about sort of looking forward. And in some ways, a reminder that, that no matter what story we're looking at related to the pandemic, that we're all still united in this sort of humanity that we're trying to get through it together. Hopefully most of us are trying to get through it in a positive way and support each other. But that really struck me in a lot of the reporting that you did about the sense of community and the sense of clinging to hope and trying to get through this. Looking forward, are there lessons that you think we can take out of this related to criminal justice, related to the prison population? Are there signs of hope that you can cling to coming out of something that has been this tragic and difficult? Yeah, you know, I think if there's one thing that one lesson that I hope we've learned or that seems to be sort of clicking in, it is that people in prison and, and, you know, prisons themselves are truly not separate from the rest of our communities. And I think that because prisons are often set in rural places, they're out of sight, they're out of mind. At the start of the pandemic, it was so easy to think, oh, well, it's not going to matter for them, right? I remember having conversations with my dad and with other friends that were like, well, aren't incarcerated people kind of the safest because they have no contact with the rest of the outside world? And so when the pandemic hit prisons and ravaged prisons and this, you know, at one point, the case numbers were like three times higher than the general public, we couldn't maintain that idea any longer, right? It became very clear that incarcerated people are part of our communities and that everything that happens outside is mirrored and magnified inside. And I think that this is just such a, it's so important. It's so fundamental because there's not much you can do, right? If you just keep thinking, oh, it's separate. They don't count. They don't matter. And so the very fact that the public has had to pay attention in a particular way that the New York Times at one point, right, was including prisons, doing a specific case count just for prisons and making clear this logic over and over again, that public health officials were saying, prioritize these people for inoculation, prioritize them, prioritize them, right? It's it's hard to kind of unlearn that. And so I'm really hopeful that if we are starting with a, a slightly different premise, that we'll start to make new and different decisions about then what we do with people who are um, incarcerated and who are behind bars. So maybe that's the one, you know, little piece of hope that I'm, I'm clinging to and, and very curious to see how this plays out. Well, it's such a reminder that we're all connected. I want to thank you for the effort that you've put into telling these stories and reminding us of this important lesson. I think the work you did is extremely important and I hope people will check it out and I just applaud your efforts. And I really thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. It's It's been very enlightening and meaningful to me. Of course. Thank you so much. And yeah, very, very good to be with you. Glad to talk about it. Voices of COVID-19 is an attempt to document the thoughts and feelings of people who are perhaps outside the limelight to get personal reflections on how a pandemic impacts all of our lives. Please join us for our next episode when we'll speak with singer-songwriter Jeremy Messersmith about how he coped with the emotion, isolation, and uncertainty of the pandemic. The hard thing was that I couldn't really listen to music. Couldn't do it at all. Uh, I went for probably six months not listening to anything. Music is a way for me to just open up emotionally. And when I hear other people's music, it kind of puts me in their shoes for where they're at emotionally. Sometimes that's a really volatile place to be. 
and I felt like I couldn't muster enough empathy to listen to music in the way that I like. I don't think I've ever had a period in my life where, where that's happened before. That's on the next episode of Voices of COVID-19. Until then, thanks for listening. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and be considerate of each other. And we'll get through this together. Thank you.